Welcome to another episode of Corkout History, where we drink Portuguese wine and we talk about Portuguese history, well, mostly the wine. My name is Andre, and I'm Inês. And welcome to Corkout History. Hello, everyone. Happy Valentine's Day, and we're back. Hi, Inês. How are you today? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. <clears throat> and did you get the bottle of wine that I sent you? I did! Wow! Yeah. I'm so eager to dig in. I can't believe that we found a bottle of wine so specific to the thing we're going to be talking about today. True, very true. So today we're going to be drinking and talking about Pedro e Inês. We'll tell you about Pedro e Inês and the story behind them in a minute, but the wine is also called Pedro e Inês. It's an homage to this couple that we're going to be talking about today. And it's a wine from the Down region. It's the first wine from the Down region that we will be drinking here in the show, I think. Is it? Because oh. I think we've drank a few from Douro, a few from Alentejo, but from okay. Down, yeah, possibly. I'm not sure. And I've never tried this wine. No, me neither. Definitely not. A little mm. bit over the price range that I usually go for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not... Well, let's try it because I'm not sure. This region is a bit tricky for me. Like sometimes I like the wine, sometimes I don't from that region. So let's try it and see how it goes. Hmm. Mm. I don't know what you mean tricky. Oh, this is amazing. Nothing tricky about it for me. It's good. Yeah, it's oh good. Oh my god! <laughs> it's good. It's good. It's good. I think it's amazing. I really think it's good. Delicious. No, it's good. It's good. Okay. 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 So this story just got so much better, and it was already so great. So <laughs> can't wait to dig in. <laughs> so the wine is called Pedrinish, and let's dive into the tale of Pedrinish, shall we? Yeah, a little bit of a Valentine's special, <laughs> amazing love story too. Amazing love story is I'm not sure. It's a bit of a tragic one, isn't it? Well, it can be amazing and tragic. True, very and true. And it is both. So, picture that. <laughs> Once upon a time, in a faraway land, a prince was born. And... Because we are a history podcast, the time was the 8th of April of 1320, and the place, the lovely city of Coimbra in Portugal. This prince was called Pedro, which could be translated as Peter, and he will, in time, become King Pedro I. But this is getting ahead of ourselves. We don't know much about his childhood, although we can assume he was raised as would be expected of a young prince at the time. Learning his letters and numbers, probably a couple of languages, but most definitely Latin. Learning to ride, fight and hunt, and, you know, learning to rule a kingdom along the way. About his physical features, the only thing we know is that he struggled with the stutter, but his story tells us quite a bit about his personality. He was apparently very passionate, impetuous, full of life, and he famously loved going hunting, appreciated a good supper, good music, poetry, a true medieval bon vivant. This prince was the son of King Afonso IV, nicknamed the Brave, usually seen as a bit of a harsh king, harsh but just. And his mother was Queen Beatrice, 
who will prove herself to be an exceptional peace broker, which was very much in line with the role of a medieval queen. Now, we can't have a medieval tale without some good old marriage alliances, right? Yeah. And King Afonso was right on it. At the age of nine, Prince Pedro was engaged to Princess Branca of Castile, the neighboring kingdom. Yeah, so the Kingdom of Portugal and the Kingdom of Castile have one of those it's complicated relationships throughout their history. <laughs> A lot of like neighboring kingdoms do. This kind of proximity creates rivalry and nothing is better to solve those than a marriage pact. Yeah. And I suppose pacts and alliances are only needed with countries that are bound to be enemies. Right, right, right. Yeah, and so this was always the case between Portugal and Castile. They've always been in this like contrived diplomacy, kind of in a perpetual tug of war that was trying to be fixed mm -hmm. through marriages, through alliances that not always went ahead very well. Prince Branca was about the same age as Pedro and the only daughter of a prince of Castile, uncle to the king himself. All the same, this engagement wouldn't come to be and the betrothal was broken, apparently due to fears about the health of the princess. She seemed to have been a bit sickly. Be that as it may, the truth is that relations with Castile were turning sour fast. So, Princess Maria of Portugal, she was sister to our Prince Pedro, wedded the King of Castile, but the marriage wasn't going well. Firstly, the Castilian king threatened to break the marriage due to difficulties in conceiving an heir, and once that was done, he openly preferred his mistress to his queen, humiliating and upsetting his wife, and no doubt damaging relations with Portugal in the process. Mm. At some point, Queen Maria had enough of it, and she put her foot down and took herself back to Portugal. King Afonso gets papa points on this one. Furious over the treatment of his daughter, he wages war on Castile. Not only that, he also negotiates another marriage to his heir, Prince Pedro, to marry Lady Constanza Manuel, the daughter of one of the most powerful Castilian nobles. Actually, a prince, related to the royal family. Who happened to oppose the Castilian king? Now, why did he oppose the Castilian king? I mean, diplomacy is complex and he might have had more than one reason, but it surely did not help that the Castilian king had married and then disposed of his daughter, imprisoned her in a castle just so he could marry Queen Maria and treat her atrociously as well. That's right. King Afonso arranged for his heir to be married to the jilted first wife of the King of Castile, the dickhead husband of his daughter. Just one point to clarify is that this first marriage was broken without being consummated, of course. So otherwise things would have been more complicated. But basically, the king arranged the marriage with this lady. Then he thought, oh no, I can have a better marriage. I'm not going to marry her, I'm cancelling that, I'm locking her up in a castle, and I'm marrying the other one. And then I'm a dick as well! And then the brother yeah, of the, yeah, his second yeah, exactly. wife gets to marry his first wife, it's crazy. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I know it is. <laughs> it really is, as we were saying before, a bit of a height-love relationship, isn't it? This whole marriage between the kingdoms and they 
didn't work, but then they try again. Most definitely. I think because the countries are so close to each other, there's always bound to be strife between them. You just keep trying and <laughs> trying and trying. Yeah. And it's like you marry someone to have an alliance and then this king of Castile goes and is a dick to his queen. So, <laughs> yeah, things don't quite work out. Of course, this lady Constance that our Pedro is going to marry, she was imprisoned by the king of Castile, so they had to marry by proxy. The prince was around 15 years old. And we're not sure of her age, right? But she was probably yeah. a couple of years older than him. And only five years later could she actually join him in Portugal after being released and stuff. Yeah. Um, so in 1340, five years later, Lisbon received Lady Constance with all the celebrations that were befitting of her role as Queen of Portugal. And Constanza brought her entourage and her ladies in waiting. And one of these ladies was Inês de Castro, a Galician noble lady that would win the heart of the prince like no other. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> this is where Inês comes in, sorry. So this is where Inês yeah, comes in. this is a big opening right. for our protagonist. And she has your so... name. She does, she yeah, does. You share a name with her. We do. Yeah. And I think like every girl named Dinesh, when I was little, I was always teased in school about all the Peters that were in class. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, but who was Dinesh? She was the illegitimate daughter of a powerful Galician nobleman and a Portuguese lady. Her father was the grandson of King Sancho IV of Castile via his mother who had also been an illegitimate child. So, I mean, this is to say that she was great-granddaughter of a king, a very noble lady indeed, although through illegitimate line. Right. She was described as being of exquisite beauty. Her heron-like neck is mentioned to portray her elegant features. As it is so often the case with our female protagonists, we do not know much of her passions or personality, unfortunately. The prince fell head over heels uh, for Inês, but he did not flaunter his love like the Castilian king had done to his sister. Their love was kept hidden. Somewhat hidden. Okay. But the prince lived with his wife, Constanza, and children were born from that marriage. However discreet Pedro and Inês tried to be, Apparently, great loves are not easy to hide. <laughs> and nor Constanza nor the court were oblivious to this relationship that was going on. So everybody knew. I feel for Constanza, really. I mean, in light of her previous failed marriage, she must have been painfully aware of how things could so easily go wrong for her. I mean, even if by then she had already had a daughter with Prince Pedro which was quite different to the circumstances in her first marriage, but still. Yeah. So, Constanza, when her first boy was born, and hoping to further secure her position, asked Lady Inish to be the baby boy's godmother. <laughs> it's such a move. It's such a move. This It might sound odd to us today, but it's actually a very astute play by Lady Constanza. Because the parents and godparents of her child were considered to become family, something like siblings in the eyes of the church. 
and by inviting Inish to be the godmother, she had in one move turned their love into kind of a more incestuous relationship, a crime in the eyes of yeah. man and god alike, which it was already, but of course that it gave it another layer. Yeah, another dimension, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, obviously, illegitimate relationships, adultery was not well seen, but... It was very common as well, so even though it goes against religious teachings, it's very common. But to turn it into these murky waters of an incestuous-ish relationship, that was a good move. I love that move by Constanza. <laughs> but clever as it was, this play would not work. Because unfortunately, the child didn't survive his first week. Immediately, rumors blamed Inish for the tragedy. If she had not murdered the child herself, she must have mispronounced her baptism vows or something, which no doubt resulted in this outcome. I mean, this logic might seem a tad ridiculous to us today, but the gossip and rumors became so prevalent, the situation at court so tense, that King Afonso decided to send Inish away, out of Portugal and away from the prince. Yeah, we need to keep on reminding that, again, Inês was also from Galicia, so she was not Portuguese. That also plays a role in how she is seen by everyone. She's the lover of the king. Now there's a child that didn't survive. She comes from another country. There's She's, foreign. she's yeah. a foreigner. Like, there's a lot of layers that make her... Yeah, a target. Yeah. None of them help. No. From being a woman to being the mistress to being foreign. Yeah. Yeah, too many none things. None of, of them are desirable. <laughs> yeah. And so she went away and she took refuge in the castle of Albuquerque near the border with Portugal and where she actually had been raised as a child with an aunt of hers. But as they say, absence is to love as wind is to fire. It extinguishes the small and kindles the great. Uh, <laughs> and so Prince Pedro and Inish corresponded secretly through letters that were taken by a secret messenger, and their separation would last just one year, as Lady Constance would then die in childbirth in 1345, giving birth to Prince Fernando, who would be the heir to the throne. Yeah, I mean, it really didn't last long, did it? But now that Prince Pedro was widowed, Inês got back to Portugal and they started openly living together in Coimbra. And these were the years, if this was a movie, this would be that part <laughs> where like blissful years, everyone is happy, they had four children together, they finally had the freedom to be together, they were, everything was good, and this is like the they joyous part. Yeah, they were happy, they were finally doing what they had wanted to do for a long time. And they lived happily ever after? Nah, our story isn't but beginning. So this is when the movie turns around and goes into that dark side <laughs> where things start going wrong? Yeah. I feel like when you get to the happy part, you start getting some red flags in your mind. This isn't going to last. Yeah. This isn't going to last. Exactly. And guess what? <laughs> And look, our happy part took like three lines on our script, so that yeah. says a lot. So they were very happy mm -hmm. and they had children. And, and then... Happy days. Yeah. One January day, the king and court were in a town not far from Coimbra. 
Prince Pedro had gone in one of his hunting trips, and the king, accompanied by three of his nobles, showed up unexpectedly at the palace where Inês and Pedro lived together. According to Fernão Lopes, who is one of our main sources for this episode, it soon dawned on Inês that the king was there to kill her. She pleaded, swore she would leave the country, begged the king to think of his grandchildren. Would he leave them without the mother? It is said that the king hesitated, torn in his decision, but that the three nobles convinced him to stick to the plan. Inês had to die. And the king, unable to commit, left the room telling them to do as they wished. Inol but did, sealing her fate. The murder showed no mercy. And Inish had her throat slitted there and then. It was the 7th January 1355, at her own home, where she had lived for 10 years with her prince and children. Some descriptions mentioned that one or more of her children were present at the time, others that she was stabbed several times before being fully decapitated, others that she was killed not in their estate of Santa Clara where they lived, but in, in some nearby gardens, in Quinta das Lágrimas, which could be translated like Villa of Tears, and it's a very popular destination nowadays that everyone goes to because it's connected to this story in Coimbra, which was actually named after the tragedy and where her blood is said to still stain the fountain, making the water run red. At least this last part, I think it is safe to assume that some embellishments might have occurred along the way. But the point is, Inej is dead, very dead. When the news reached him, Prince Pedro was incensed, mad with grief and despair. His Inej, the love of his life, mother of his children, dead. Murdered, taken away from him by his own father. Yeah, and the prince joined forces with Inez's brother and together they raised an army and declared war on King Afonso, on Pedro's father. Prince Pedro raided the lands of his father, destroying everything in his way. The north of Portugal was devastated in his grief and fury until he reached the city of Porto, the largest city in the north which resisted his attack. The city walls had seen better days. There were breaches and holes that severely compromised the structure. Hearing that the raging prince was near, the city folk gathered the sails of the ships that were docked in Porto, so that when they arrived, Prince Pedro's army would be greeted by a defiant city with proud city walls covered in banners flapping in the wind with the crests of those who lived there. Finally, in the summer of 1355, half a year into this civil war between father and son, peace was finally brokered thanks to Queen Beatrice. Father and son, so Afonso and Pedro, compromised, and Prince Pedro swore to forgive the man involved in the murder of Inej, and peace was achieved. But would it be so? The king was old, and he would not live long after that, dying in May 1357, short of two years into this peace. But <laughs> he knew his son too well, and before passing, he warned the three noblemen responsible for Inessa's death that despite what his son might have sworn, they would better make their way out of the country, for 
once Pedro was king, their lives might be in danger. The nobles were wise and took his advice and sought refuge in Castile, where the neighboring king welcomed them. Yeah, that was a smart move. Yeah. <laughs> smart move. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so often we look at these stories and we're like, what? Yeah. Why? What? Yeah. <laughs> no, they did what <laughs> good they... Good call, yeah. good call, guys. Yeah, just go. <laughs> um, but with the passing of King Afonso, Prince Pedro became king, King Pedro I. And his father was soon to be proven right. As soon as he got to the throne, Pedro got into secret negotiations with the King Pedro, another Pedro, of Castile. <laughs> yeah, this is a new king, so they were cousins. The Castilian king was the son of Queen Maria, Prince Pedro's sister. And the king we mentioned before, the one who was addicted to both of his wives. So this is their son now, who's king. And it's called Pedro as well. <laughs> Bit confusing, but we're here for that. Yeah. <laughs> so they were cousins. And both kingdoms... It has every... They were all cousins. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, and both kingdoms had noble refugees. Nobles that were running from the neighboring country to whom they had offered protection. So with these negotiations between Pedro and Pedro... The kings pulled a pact and agreed to break their protection vows and exchange refugees. Oh, shame, shame, shame. And the pact worked, and although one of the murderers managed to escape, King Pedro of Portugal still got his hands on two of the murders of Inês. According again to Fernão Lopes, King Peter was in his palace all set and ready to dine, but in the same room, chained to a wall, were the two noblemen that had murdered his beloved Inish. The men were, of course, condemned to die, but not before their due torture. The king watched as the men were interrogated. The king wanted to know the name of other conspirators, anyone who might have been involved in this senseless killing, anyone that he could punish. The men were adamant in their silence and the king lost his temper and hit them himself, but the only names he was able to get from them were the insults spat at his person. Finally, the king had enough of this sordid business and ordered that they brought him onions and vinegar for his rabbit, which were sardonic words for one of the killer's surname was rabbit. So the king set to dine and ordered them killed. But not just any death. No. One was to have his heart ripped out through his chest and the other through his back. Let them know how it was to have their heart ripped out. How Pedro had felt when his beloved had died. Oh God. Oh dear. Oh I God. Know. Very dramatic. <laughs> Pedro ordered that their bodies would be burned and this was the treatment reserved to criminals most vile. In the same year of 1360, Pedro would publicly declare that he had actually married Inej in secret years before, and that as such, she had actually been, in truth, the Queen of Portugal, and that was actually the Queen of Portugal that his father had murdered, and that their children were, in fact, all legitimate. This makes Inej the only queen to have been crowned posthumously. Has Camões? would put so beautifully in his epic poem, The Lusiad. 
that ill-starred miserable dame, who, folly slain, a throne queen became. Being the queen of Portugal, Pedro found that Inês now needed to be buried with the honors of a queen. She had been buried in Coimbra before, where she had been killed. Pedro now ordered the construction of her tomb in the monastery of Alcobaça, where kings were to be buried. As soon as her grave was ready, her body was exhumed and transferred to Alcobaça in a most magnificent ceremony which impressed the contemporaries. A procession that traveled the 100 kilometers in between these two cities with more than a thousand candles lit day and night, compared to stars taking her to her final resting place. This is where we come to one of the most sordid episodes on this tale. It is said that when King Pedro moved the body of Inês, he decided to make sure that all the skeptics would see her as a rightful queen. He dressed her cadaver in the finest royal garments, set her on the throne, and had her crowned for all to see. And then... He made everyone at court kneel and kiss the dead body's hand. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Inish had been dead for about five years at this point. (laughs) So picture that. But whereas everything else we have told you today is fact, this little horrid episode is not. Although, if you look in Nirst Castro online, you'll find a myriad of pages presenting you this episode as real. That just isn't the case. This episode gets to us thanks to the fanciful imagination and creative flair of a later playwright. But we will go into that in another episode. Let's stick to the facts here. Right. He also ordered that the most wonderful tomb would be built, something that would be befitting of his beloved Inish. Um, This turned out to be a stunning Gothic masterpiece. Their tombs are no doubt one of fine examples of the kind, aren't they? They are. Absolutely. And the whole setting where they are, like, it's a thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing. And we are definitely going to post some pictures of this to Instagram. Now we will do our best to describe them a little bit. Yeah. So the tomb has a resemblance of Inej laid serenely at rest with angels all around her with scenes of the life of Jesus Christ on the sides. And in particular, we need to make a mention to a last judgment scene, which is often seen and interpreted as Pedro's declaration to everyone that heaven was indeed reserved for Inej, that she was not a sinner. There is also the Portuguese royal crest alongside the crest of the Castro family, so Inez's family, and most significantly of all, there is a crown upon the head of Inej, officially making her his queen and the queen of Portugal for all eternity. And if that was not enough, you can still read the words até ao fim do mundo, which mean until the end of the world. Peter's tomb was made to match, but instead of scenes of the life of Christ, he shows scenes with Saint Bartholomew, probably a nod to the king's struggle with his stutter, and depictions of his life with Inês, like Inês and his children, Inês and Pedro playing chess, embracing, and then Inês being murdered and the punishment of the killers, amongst other scenes. Originally, the tombs were side by side. Inês was on the right, has his wedded queen, but they have since been moved, and now instead of side by side, they lay across from each other. So if you go in, you'll have one to your right and one to your left. And legend has it that this way, 
when the day of the last judgment is upon us, then they rise from their deathbeds. The first thing that they will see is one another. Oh, isn't it beautiful? It is beautiful. It is, it is. <laughs> Such an amazing story, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, Pedro and Inés are really one of those cross-lovers. Like, Such a beautiful yes, tale! The lovers that couldn't be the whole family against it and like kingdoms and all of that. And I mean, can I say goals? I mean, if your partner wouldn't like rip the hearts out of whoever kills you and then get you <laughs> translated with the million candles all around mm. you and then doesn't make the most amazing tomb ever and writes until the end of the world on it like yeah is it even a partner worth having come on <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> goals <laughs> that's just yeah just if things go wrong yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But if they do go wrong... <laughs> anyway, it is quite the story. And the most <laughs> impressive thing about it is that it's a true story. Yeah. Lots and lots... It's often compared to Romeo and Juliet, isn't yeah. it? But Romeo and Juliet mm -hmm. is a story, built to be a story. Mm -hmm. And this one is true. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And there was a lot that was written about it, like... Lots of different things that were made with this story yeah. throughout the years. And I'm sure we'll get to speak of those. We will. Yeah, but the story, like the basic facts are true and happen. And they make for quite a thing, don't they? Mm -hmm. There's a few things we haven't covered. But why did Inish have to die? Yes, like who was this woman that captured the heart of the prince? Why did King Afonso decide to kill her? And what exactly were the consequences of that decision? Was this ever turned into a movie? Is there a soap opera based on this story? There should be, really. <laughs> Find out in our next episode, where we will deep dive into everything surrounding this wonderfully tragic love story. And this is where I'll stop for now. Join us on the next episode. Until then, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Corkout History Pod, where you can reach out to us, let us know your thoughts, and discover more about the episodes. Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you're listening to us. Your comments really are crucial so that more people can find us. Bye! Bye.